Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, you're listening to Talking Books, and I'm Susie Wilde. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. This month, we're joined by author Camilla Chester, described as a dog walker who writes by her publisher. She certainly is a dog walker. We first met at a Scooby conference, so Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. What does Scooby stand for? Well, Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. Nothing to do with the Scooby snack. No, they or, hate no. it being called okay. Scooby, so okay. it's nothing to do with um, okay. dogs that uh, detect. Why do they call it? S-C-B-W-R. Well, it's such a mouthful. It's a long story and it's American originally, so it's strictly UK. We'll allow it. But I was front of house and I passed over the front of house nurse to Camilla and you'll see why when she's here. Great, great. Well, we've been having a busy time here in the bookshop. We've had Independent Booksellers Week. We've had lots of authors. We've had, uh, well, some of whom I've read their books, so we'll, we'll be talking about them later, but also had a relenting time with Kate Moss came in. Kate Moss, the, oh, the Chichester writer. Uh, who we interviewed? In, who we interviewed? Uh, and she came and had a spent a morning here signing books and talking to talking to delighted customers. So that was great. But anyway, let's start with what you've been reading. Right. Well, I've read. A, I've been reading a few, quite a variety of different books this this uh, this time. Um, I read Snow Widows, which is I'm gonna, by Catherine McKinnis. It's about the five women who were left behind when Scott and his team. Died on the way back from their South Pole expedition in 1911, 1912, and what she does is she interlocks the stories of of the of the explorers and the wives and mothers of the five people. Um, Did the wives know each other, or they did a bit? Some of them did, um, and some of the but but afterwards they got to know each other better. Funnily enough. Um, and she does it in a chronological order, so she takes us from you know from the expedition setting off to the to the final discovery by the wives um, that all their all their men folk were dead. Of course, they didn't know for they thought they were still alive a year after they had perished. Gosh. So it is quite a it's, a, it's of a, of its era. It's also a book about the end of the end of empire, the the end of an era really, the end of the the Edwardian era and. and you know, just the beginning of the First World War, which, is, which takes place at the end of the book. So um, it's a it's a really interesting read, actually. And she spent years and years writing this book, so it was well worthwhile. I always think it's strange that Shackleton's ex ex yeah, you've got me at it now. Expedition um, also happened during the First World War. It just seems like two completely one's a sort of chivalric heroic era. And the other is the end of all that, even with yeah, the language. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, I think it, it does. It does. It's a. It's a cut. It's a turning point, really. Yeah. And I think that's always, always interesting reading about turning points. Yeah. Um, I also read a book by uh, Roger Morgan Grenville, who's another another friend of the program. Um, a book called Taking Stock, which is a book about cows. It's a really interesting. It's a bit niche. This book. Um, uh, you might think it would be a bit dry, but it's not at all. It's it's really fascinating. He has a great lightness of touch, and I uh, I now know a lot more about cows than I did before. He's very self-deprecating. Well, it's, he's he's good at he's good at uh, good at telling stories. I think that's 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 uh, a skill. Um, and talking of stories, I read a story called "The Love of My Life" by Rosie Walsh, um, which again is quite different from perhaps things I might normally be reading. Um, it's a great setup, actually. It's a 
it's, it's there's a there's a um, loving husband and wife and child, and it's all th- all you thought this is all very cosy, and in fact the story is that um, the wife has a has a past which is gradually revealed as the book goes forward, um, and of course the the husband is an obituary writer for a newspaper, <laughs> so and he's because his wife has had a nasty cancer scare, he is he has been and she's quite a famous person. She's had he's had to write her obituary. Ready oh, in case she died death. ahead of death, yeah. uh, and um, don't worry, that that's not an issue in the book. Um, but of course, he starts to find things out about her that that he didn't realise. Oh, that sounds uh, good. And um, so there are lots of twists and turns, and that it's it's good fun actually. Um, what else have I been reading? I've been reading a book called Undercurrents by Barney Norris, and I'll tell you talk more about that next month when when it it comes out. It's an uh, early edition. It's really a really good book actually, and sort of in contrast to the Rosie Walsh, it's much more much more of a literary type book. Um, I've also been reading, um, of course, um, Camilla Chester's book, but um, but we'll talk about a bit about that later. Yeah, absolutely fine. Well. Since this month, I've mostly been reading about what you recommended last month, Tim, so I'm not going to dwell on most of it. So I actually thought last time I went a bit off piste and talked about audiobooks and said that they were rather compared to the um, the act of reading straight from the page, which I thought was a very active thing to do. I always find audiobooks much more passive and that can be great, for example, when you're driving, as I mentioned. But also I love listening to podcasts while I'm driving but it occurred to me that it's a much more active pursuit as well and sometimes I've missed a whole chunk of it and I have to rewind because I've been concentrating on a roundabout or something and I realise I have to actually buy into it and I thought I'd talk about my absolute favourite podcast Backlisted. Oh right yes Um, have you listened to it I I have listened to some of it it's It's just wonderful so it's my um, publisher Unbound. Uh, John Mitchinson, who's one of the, the co-founders of it, um, it's his brilliant idea with Andy Miller of The Year of Reading Dangerously. They both have brilliant radio voices and they always have wonderful guests. And as they say, they put life into old books. So this is where I pinched the whole idea of my backlisted section for us from. Um so the latest of the fortnightly editions, it's actually episode 165. Do you think we'll ever reach 165 of this? I doubt it. They are fortnightly. That one has novelist Joanne Harris as a guest to celebrate Mervyn Peake's three novels, often erroneously referred to as the Gormenghast trilogy. So anyone listening, some illustrations are absolutely wonderful in that. But I want to talk about episode 159 because that's Fungus the Bogeyman by Raymond Briggs. That's one of my absolute favourites and links also to last month's edition of our podcast, Talking Books, where I talked about the Neil Gaiman chivalry. So everything sort of comes round. And what I love about Fungus the Bogeyman is actually how literary it is. Um, I actually used to teach it. Have you ever read it Tim? I think so not not in um, not in recent years but um, I'm not sure I have actually. Oh Tim you must. I mean I've seen the, seen the book we've had a book in the shop but I, I'm not sure I've actually sat down and ever read it. Um, I'm really excited because we have literally this minute been joined by my friend Camilla um, so we'll carry on regardless and she's going to sit there and probably butt in if I know Camilla and please do if you want to. 
um, that would be absolutely fine. So I'm just talking about Fungus the Bogeyman. Oh, yes. But... I remember it well. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Camilla's young enough, I could have taught it to you. But um, no, I, I, I do absolutely love it. But before I leave um, the backlisted podcast, I do want to say that it's so wide ranging and diverse. So, for instance, um, the legendary publisher, editor, writer Margaret Busby and the award winning poet Raymond Antrobus recently discuss, discussed the work of the Caribbean writer. Andrew Salkey's 1960 Hampstead Bedsit novel. Now, I had no idea that anyone had written Bedsit novels other than Alan Silito, etc. And who wrote The L-Shaped Room? That's your start of the Lynn Reed Banks. Anyway, his Hampstead Bedsit novel is Escape to an Autumn Pavement, and he's also written an epic poem, Jamaica, which sounds like a knock-knock joke, but anyway... Um, it, it isn't. It's an epic poem. So that's just a little taster of the wonder. I can't recommend it more highly than that. But I just read a little bit about bogey ball because it's 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 one of the best things about sport ever written. I think bogey ballers are so wrapped up. It's a wonder they can move at all. Yet despite this and the layer of filth, they seem to move with an effortless grace and dignity, which makes the, f- the fussy scurrying about of surface footballers appear slightly ridiculous. <laughs> the bogey ball is much larger than a football, being 31 binches in diameter and of an extremely light nature, more like a balloon than a ball. Bogeymen seem to be entirely lacking in the competitive spirit, for the object of the game is to put the ball into the into the player's own goal and help the opposing team to put the ball into their goal. The aim is to lose the game, that is, to score the fewest goals. This is quite difficult when the opposing team is helping you to score. Bogeymen are shy, gentle and retiring by nature, so there is no physical contact between them and their games. Should two players accidentally bump into one another, they will immediately step back and bow formally emitting a quiet hiss at the same time. In bogey ball, the ball is passed gently from one player to another, more often with the head than the feet. For this reason, bogey ballers wear bogey ball bonnets, which are flat-topped hats designed not to protect their heads, but to protect the ball from damage by the bogeyman's little horns. Bogeymen never run or hurry, not even in their games, so the match proceeds with an almost dreamlike slow motion. There is no shouting or cheering. The crowd expresses its approval with a quiet hissing. A goal is greeted with complete silence and stillness. Many spectators instantly fall asleep. (laughs) The strange and unnerving silence which follows a bogey goal is a memorable event to anyone who has ever experienced it. That's just beautiful, isn't it? Oh, Nadia, you're right. What what brilliant writing. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. And what he's done... He- so, Tim, I'm so disappointed that you haven't actually read Fungus the Bogeyman because I was going to segue into a lively discussion of its literary merits. Uh, <laughs> it's somebody actually on the Backlisted podcast um, said that it's a child's anatomy of melancholy, which I think is yeah. absolute genius, yeah. after Richard Burton, not the actor. Um, and Paul McCartney was inspired to write bogey music which probably follows if I know our producer will have sourced it. Camilla 
Chester has been a finalist in two national children's writing competitions for the National Literacy Trust and Mislexia, and has previously successfully self-published three novels. Call Me Lion is her first traditionally published novel. Camilla is a mum with a passion for her family and other animals, especially dogs and horses. Uh, She used to write a blog for her dog, Stanley. So what happened? He reached middle age and decided (laughs) he was was beyond blogging anymore. Fair enough. He was quite settled, thank you very much. I sort of feel the same. I'm I'm beyond blogging these days in in, in middle age as well. So tell me, Camilla, tell tell us a little bit about, about Call Me Lion. Oh, well, Call Me Lion um, is a very special story. It's about a boy who has a condition, a social anxiety condition called selective mutism, which means that he, he's physically able to talk and he talks quite normally when he's at home with his family, but when he's outside of the home, he's unable to speak. Um, it, it's described as like a phobia of talking, um, very, very terrified of talking. Um, and it's about friendship with the girl that comes to live next door who has a secret of her own, and because Leo can't talk, she feels that it's safe to tell him her secret. So don't tell us what the secret is, that's quite a good reveal. Because uh, uh, I, 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 mean, I, I love the book, but I hate it when people tell me too much about, about a book before I've read it, but I've, I've read it, but some of our readers won't have done. Why did you choose this, this particular genre and this age range? Well, I've always written for this age range. It's my sort of comfort zone. Um, most, most writers have a comfort zone of things that they like to write in, and mine is particularly middle grade. I like the length of the text. I like the voice of the text, and I like the fact that you can slip between genres quite easily, and children are very forgiving of that. You're not set in one particular thing. You can, you can play around. It's quite playful. So that, But this particular story um, is quite unusual because I felt like... Um, it came to me, the voice of the boy came to me while I was out dog walking, which is another job that I do to support the books. I walk dogs. Um, and he was talking quite a lot to me and telling me about his life in Luton, you know, his family and his dog and all this sort of stuff. But when I actually came to write the book, I found that he wasn't talking to anybody else. It was a very strange and quite spiritual experience, actually. And it made me reach out into the community to try and find people that were living with this condition. And it snowballed from there, really. Once I had people involved in the book, it became bigger than me. And not just about me and Leo having this sort of private chat. It was, it was something very important. And I could see children, were, I could hear their voices because, of course, they communicated through email to me. Um, and I felt it was very important to get it right um, and use what they told me in the book which is why it's so authentic and genuine because it's actually the voices of the children that worked with me on the book did you know about selective mutism at the start of this camp so you heard the voice and then realized that that person couldn't say it could only be in fascinating exactly that i mean i must have had some sort of awareness of it you know you must have i must have known that they're there was a condition of that, and I, I vaguely remembered watching a documentary. They, it was called Mute Children, Mute Children, and that was years and years and years ago. But no, I had no, I had no personal experience of it. I didn't before I started researching. I didn't know anybody who had the condition, and that was one of the main reasons that I first sought out with the mission of getting sensitivity readers, which is what we talk about. Like when you feel like your book is sort of finished, but you're looking for someone to just tick, uh, do a tick. And it wasn't, that experience wasn't that at all. It was very much like, 
um, involving them right again, right from the start. So sort of, even though I had the character, obviously it was it was um, changing it considerably because I felt like then I had total permission to write from the heart of it, which was about this boy struggling. Um, and was he always the age? Yeah. Well, he was actually originally a little bit younger. Okay. Um, so his voice was quite young, and I, I did... Um, it was like an amalgamation, because once you start getting writing advice from... It's like two camps, so it's like the, the advice from people that were living with the condition, and then advice from sort of the writing community, of course, to help you shape your craft. And the writing community were saying, you need to age it up slightly. So I did make him older and have older situation older concerns and um but yes it was um very eye-opening experience yeah yeah because you, you um it's interesting because there's quite a lot of books out there about social anxiety uh, mm-hmm. especially amongst, amongst that that age range um but t- to make it very specific about about selective mutism mm. that's 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 uh that, and that's really interesting that you that you've chosen chose to do that yeah yeah, well, I, I actually don't feel like it was a personal choice. Yeah, no, it just happened. It's, it, yeah, it's just something that more like I was picked to do it, which sounds very strange, but I, that's kind of how I felt, like it, almost like a calling, you know, that it, it was a story that was looking for someone to tell it. Um, so it could have been somebody else, you know, that did it, and I feel quite blessed, really, that I'm the author of it, because... I know already how much good it's doing, and um, that I, that's enormously satisfying to know that you're you're putting out something positive into the world. You were listening. That's the difference. Yeah, maybe right. Maybe you're right. There's another aspect of the book which, which I liked, which is that um, the, the teenage supportive teenage siblings, which is not all, always the case that you have uh, in fiction that you of this uh, middle grade fiction where you have. You know, you often have irritating teenage siblings, or you have interfering ones, or you have uh, just, just I don't know, not very particularly nice ones. But these ones actually are very supportive, and they're actually almost the carers, aren't they? Yeah, they are, and I, I think it's important to do that. I mean, often I grew up in a single parent house. I had I'm the youngest of four. Um, and I wouldn't say my, my brothers and sisters were as nice as, as Brian and Brianna. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, but I think it's important to do that positive representation because I think often what happens is when there's a, a family that perhaps hard up or living in, a, in an area that's not quite affluent or whatever, they're often portrayed as, uh, you know, problem after problem. Mm. Um, and I wanted to do something, I wanted to show that it wasn't always like that for every family and that... that so love is at the core of it mm. and they're very supportive of, of Lion and of what's happening with him and they're very encouraging they bicker with each other and I think that's mm. ha- you know in a gentle way yeah, in, yeah it, it's, it's nice that, but I, you I, never I, doubt that they love each other yeah and of course, Lion has such a big need. There's almost no need for other conflict, is there? Mm. So that's, I think that works really well. Yeah, There's so you. much love in the book. Yeah, that's definitely what I wanted. I wanted to show a loving mother, but mainly loving siblings, um, and and show that that, was, that support was there. And then sometimes it's not they're not fully do the right thing because they're not in his head and we are. But they they're trying their hardest. They're trying their very best to make life as easy for him as possible. One of the things I also loved about it was that it gave me hope. It's not just about Lion. It's not just about how he feels and so on. But the other sort of almost... I mean, she's such a big character. 
uh, Risha, yeah. uh, and I won't again have any spoilers, but um, we can all relate to both of them, and I found that their relationship was really important. Yeah. And there were at least two occasions where I wanted to cry oh. in the book, even as yeah. an adult. And we can all relate to our own social anxieties even that we feel particularly post-covid I think that kind of coming in with a form of social anxiety Mm. is obviously nothing like as acute and we all learn how to paper over the cracks as we get older Mm -hmm. but the cracks are still there yeah and I found it a very optimistic and hopeful book and can you say a little more um so I I should say um that Camilla and I are part of a group called the hairy godmothers <laughs> it's a and, horrible name and i'm not gonna say why but it has to do with fairy godmothers which is quite nice yes, really isn't yeah. it and we really got going during lockdown on zoom didn't we, we? Did. i mean we knew each other from the society of children's book writers and illustrators um but that was really wonderful and mutually yeah. beneficial so yeah. the other day we were talking about this and and camilla said something to us about um it's almost like a pebble in the pond of yeah. of goodness. Can yeah. you will you say more about that sort of and maybe mention James or Yeah. Well it's the 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 magic of the book. So when I did first reach out into the community, what happened was is I found an organisation called SMIRA, which is Selective Mutism Information Resource Association. So it's it's like a support for pe- pe- families affected with, with SM they call it for short. Um and what they did is I wrote a post which they then put on their Facebook group and um, and it was an appeal for anyone that wanted, like I was saying about sensitivity readers, for anyone who wanted to get involved in Corbin Lion, which was then called Lion. Um, I always knew he was called Lion because he explained about his dandelion clock of hair. So that was always there in the book that he had this sort of mane of, of hair and it was the hair that I could see very clearly. Um, and and of quite a few different families helped me and reached out to me, and I had some wonderful experiences. Um, but in particular, the most important and powerful one was was Donna Redrup, and she told me about her son James. Um, now James had had struggled with SM all his childhood, and he was a very gentle, kind person. And sadly, he died of sudden onset leukaemia in his early 20s, a few days before his birthday. And he was due to take all of his family to see The Lion King for his birthday. Um, And for those of you that have read the book, you'll know how important that is, because that's Leo's aspiration. He's a dancer and and so is Richard. And he is desperate to dance in The Lion King. That's his like ultimate dream. So it's very powerful that... um, that we had this similarity and that it all pushed all of Donna's buttons and she got in touch with me and she read the first draft and there were so many things that were common patch was always there the dog um, and the relationship with the boy and the dog was always in the book Um, and she said that that was the same with her son her son had a very close friend like Richard but called Kerry Um, they they lived in Watford which is very close to Luton there was sort of it was sort of like similar 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 um so it was very moving and that's one of the reasons why it became bigger than me and 
that was sort of like the start. James was actually writing a children's book when he died, and it was all about trying to raise awareness of the condition of so uh, of selective mutism, and trying to put it into a way where children would be able to understand and and wider than that you know parents teachers carers people that could understand a bit more about what goes on inside quiet children's heads um and so I felt like I was carrying on a little bit with what James's mission was and so Donna's been by my side all the way and um very powerful things are happening now the book is published and it's really genuinely touching lives and we've had lots and lots of different things happen but possibly the most recent which is amazing is um, a parent got in touch with me through Facebook and said uh, that uh, thank you it was like about four different thank yous thank you thank you thank you thank you for writing this book Um, my daughter my 12 year old daughter's been reading it and every few pages she looks up and says Lion is just like me and then it facilitated a conversation that she'd not been able to have before um, with with her daughter about how she feels about having this condition and how it affects her both at home and at school and in her life and that's because of the book and that's you know that's one example and I feel like it's only early days and it's going to go on touching people's lives in this way and that's incredibly powerful it's like a sort of as I was saying a positive ripple effect that just like negativity you can you can do it the positive way as well and it can ripple out books are about starting conversations mm. uh, you know um you know, read a book share share the book and and especially a book about a particular sort of issue mm. like selective mutism mm. where, where uh it, it will be a real conversation starter i think mm. and really important to mm. get that into 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 schools and so. you know where mm. where and libraries and things where people pick the book up read it it's not, doesn't take long to read this book no. um but it is. I would really recommend it. Actually, not. It's not just for children. I think good good writing is always for everybody. Yeah, um, and yeah. uh, I, I really enjoyed it. So oh, thank so, you very much. Well wonderful. Yeah. The journey goes on. Yes, it does. This is just the start, everybody. <laughs> that was wonderful, Camilla. Thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Yes, thanks for coming. That's a pleasure. So, Tim, what have we got to look out for this month? Well, I've got several books that are coming out in paperback for the first time. I wanted to talk about those just briefly. Lincoln Highway by Amor Tals. Now, he did um, Gentleman in Moscow, which was a huge seller during lockdown. And and a lot of people talked about it. A lot of people found it very useful because it's partly a book set in one place for a long time. (laughs) He's literally trapped in this hotel for for decades. Um, This is a completely different book because it's a big open spaces it's um set in the 50s and it's about a, a couple of young people that go on that road trip and and things happen and things change um i haven't read it yet i'm looking forward to it now that it's out, out in paperback but i think that's that's one to look out for the gardener by sally vickers uh this is about two very different sisters who decide to buy a rundown cottage in the in the welsh marches and um one of them is a is a kind of wealthy banker who sees it as a as a weekend retreat, and the other one, that's Margot Hassey, the other one, um, is an illustrator with no money and just come out of an unsuccessful love affair, and she's in a in a, not in a very good place at all, and she decides to turn the garden into something that's 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 habitable and nice, and she comes across all sorts of stuff, there's lots of local issues going on in in the village and everything. It's a it's a thoughtful. Um, elegant book, and I I I, re- I like Sally Vickers. I, I think love she, Sally she's, Vickers. she's got some interesting things to say. So um, 
that just come out in paperback. Um, the new Ken Follett, I know there's a lot of, he's a very popular author, I haven't ever ever really got into him at all, but his, his new book, Never, is come, just come out in paperback, and that's about a, a rather cheerful subject of the on, oncoming World War Three, which is... You know, but Great! Anyway, that's, uh, but, um, anyway that, that's just out in paperback. There are two big sequels coming this month. Um, the first one is is a is a paperback of of by A. J. Pierce called Yours Cheerfully. It's a sequel to Dear Mrs. Bird, which is um, a really I think a really interesting and fun book set in the Second World War, um, and it's it's a bit jolly hockey sticks in part, but at the same time this is this book is is a, is a cheerful and light book, but it's actually about a serious subject. It's about um, women's rights in munitions factories during the war. Uh, because for the first time, uh, women were working under the, in the conditions that men had worked in, uh, but they were treated even worse than the men were. Of course. Uh, and um, Which the men weren't treated particularly well in the first place, but the women were treated even worse. Uh, and uh, so it's a book about that. But it's a kind of, I don't know, it's it's sort of quite light-hearted, but it's a serious subject at, at its base. It's, really... it's a bit like Lisa Evans. So Yeah, I, just, a... I think that's a fair, a fair, fair comparison, actually. Okay. I think um, it's good, good at cheerful stuff. Um, the other book is, is 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 a big book. I think it's just just out. It's, it's Jesse Burton's book, The House of Fortune. That itself is a, is a sequel to The Miniaturist, which I think it came out about five or six years ago. Uh, which was a huge, huge bestseller. Um, and this is literally a straightforward sequel. Um, at the end of that book, well, I won't tell you exactly what happens, but some people come to some sticky ends. Uh, and there is a there is a there is a child. I won't tell you where, who's how that child comes about. Why, where? But uh, and it's the story of this child reaching reaching eight, coming eighteen, and uh, and the story starts there. But uh, so that's that's what's coming up in the next few weeks. Some good ones. Is this a good time of year for things to come out? Well, it's often the time when when big books that came out in the autumn last year come out in paperback this year. So uh, it's not. It's not when the new books come, but it's when the when the books come out in an accessible form, so people can take them away on their on their summer holidays. Great, thanks, Tim. Okay, so my backlisted. I know I've already done a Penelope Lively, but that was the Wild Hunt of Hegworthy, which I'm looking at Camilla because it's um, a middle grade book, but it's so long ago. It's before you were born. I don't remember um, that one, but <laughs> you won't. It's honestly, it's really good. I love Do you Penelope, like Penelope Lively. Oh, yeah. she's a great writer. Um, but this is a, an adult. It's her third novel, Judgment Day, which was published by Heinemann in 1980. And I found the first edition in Peaceville Bookshop, which is our second-hand bookshop. And I love going mooching in there and just... I think it's important to not go in deciding what you want to buy, but just seeing what's there. Mm. And so this is wonderful. I found it. I grabbed it. Um and funnily enough, Tim, because you talked last month about the Reverend Richard Coles and I've now read that, which was good. It's all right. You know, I wouldn't <laughs> rave about it. Um, I like... I, yeah, I think, I, I think it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's easy to, to write it off as a sort of cosy crime and say, well, you know, it's, and it's a little bit, um, I don't know. The, the murders aren't that grisly or gruesome and, and <laughs> nothing, you know, although people do get killed, it's nothing really other than that really sort of... It's not, I don't know, what the, it's not got a serial killer or anything. It, it, but what the book is really about is about the, the rhythms of life in a... It's set in the 1980s, of a vicar and a rural parish. 
and um, of, that's he writes of, of which he, of what he knows. Yes, uh, and uh, I think he really gets he gets really into that. And I those think it's, bits it's, um, I think are really good. I yeah. think in a way it's a classic first novel. It should have been edited a bit more thoroughly, but I think that's when the celebrity actually goes against him slightly mm. because he has thrown the kitchen sink into it. He is showing his erudition, and there are many, many particularly similes in there that I, you know. I started looking up and then I ultimately couldn't be bothered. And so it actually just got in the way. So um, one of the characters makes a gesture like Margaret of Eck or something like that. I mean, Oek. I've no idea what that is and therefore I've no idea what the gesture was. So funnily enough, we're now discussing Richard Coles because um, this Judgment Day by Penelope Lively is another untimely death um, dealt with by a socially awkward vicar in a small village. In 1980, I mean, actually in 1980, it's when the book was written, um, contemporaneously. Um, It's a vicar of Dibley character-led committee humour in there as well. Um, Tragedy is brewing. We know right from the first page, I think, that Claire Paling, who's one of the protagonists, bears her teeth in a smile. So you know that she's not just going to be a classic sort of Um, attractive woman even though the vicar really fancies her Um, so what does it say the blurb settled into the drowsy village life of Ladnam where she's playing camp follower to her highly successful husband Claire Paling she of the bared teeth smile clever agnostic and curious discovers that small communities offer interesting sideshows of adultery gossip and carefully adhered to pecking orders now here I have to point at Camilla and say that when I was teaching in the 1980s, this reminds me so much of um, small villages all around Watford. So all this is so well-researched. And like, and what I love about Penelope Lively, that in one sentence, she will completely nail our minutiae of social subdivisions and so on you know all our class-based system we absolutely just completely get and I think one of my um the extract that I'm going to read will probably be that but anyway there's going to be a pageant which reminded me of Virginia Woolf it takes the pageant celebrating the church's fourth centenary and an unpardonable death to remind Claire who had almost forgotten that the world is a very uncertain place but it's not just Um, she's not the main point of view protagonist also George the vicar is so it's it's kind of shared and and indeed not the only ones but it's good Um, so here's a little bit of that so I'm going to read um, from Judgment Day starting pretty much at the beginning page two it describes the doom which is a wall painting um, in the church which of course is an old word for fate so this Fate is a thread. It's almost like Virginia Woolf that that goes right through, rippling. But anyway, we'll meet the two main characters. In a literate age, the symbolisms are more obscure. The doom over the crossing arch, for instance, the 14th century wall painting that is the church's glory and surprise, puzzles members of the congregation today. Those queerly bundled figures on one side, their form barely discernible, The plasterwork has not been restored. Those are the grey statuesque forms sitting up in, apparently, bathtubs. Those red monkeyish things with toasting forks, could it be? Angels to the left, sinister and spectral figures to the right. A rising or a falling, 
a golden glow despite the faded pigments, or a dark writhing obscurity. In any case, the whole thing is very difficult to make out, and perhaps uncomfortable if studied in detail. George Radwell, the vicar, coming into the church on a June morning, was surprised to see a woman standing in the nave staring intently at the painting. A tall, bony young woman with stringy brown hair, wearing jeans and a cotton jersey. A stranger, he thought, no one local, until she turned and glanced at him, and he recognised the thin face and large mouth of the new woman next door, the one with the white mini and two children, and a husband said to be something important at United Electronics. She stood there in a shaft of sunlight, bathed in gold like a stained glass virgin, bared her teeth at him in apparently greeting, and turned back at once to the painting. He cleared his throat. Ah, <clears throat> oh, he said, you must be... Uh... And she paid him no attention at all. He was dismissed. Claire Paling saw a sandy-haired man hovering at the doorway, a man of forty-odd with the papery red skin of the very fair, blinking and shuffling and somehow inspiring distaste even at that range, and on a translucent summer morning. Oh, Lord, she thought, the vicar, of course, him from next door, and sweetly beamed before returning to the painting. George took four steps left to the font and fiddled with the cover. Mrs Paling continued to study the doom. He went over to the organ and shuffled the pile of sheet music. Then he marched down the nave and launched into conversation. Disastrous, as it was to turn out, conversation. Ah, he said, you must be Mrs Paling. My church warden mentioned Sidney Porter lives in the corner house. Possibly you've come across. Uh, Also, I've noticed the car. Nice to have children around. Not that I've been twitching the lace curtains, don't think. (laughs) He laughed, the silly, snorty laugh that always came when he was least sure of himself. Settled in all right, I hope, he continued. Very friendly place, Laddenham. Quite a bit going on one way and another. Madrigal Society meet at uh, Flourishing Adult What's It, I'm told. Cricket, if your husband plays. Thought he looked as if possibly. Anyway, sure, you'll find plenty. Lots of redecorating, I expect. These big Edwardian houses. Vicarage badly in need of... uh, Know the air already, perhaps? And she ignored all this, not even looking at him most of the time, engrossed still by the doom. 14th century, I suppose, she said. It's very like the one at North Lee, isn't it? Same hand, I wonder. And the weighing of souls at South Lee. The colours are remarkable. George mumbled something, said he always found it a bit depressing, made or tried to make a joke about red devils that she didn't follow. Aeroplanes, she said, staring. Sorry, I don't quite. RAF base, he persisted. Williton, 10, 12 miles away, aerobatic stuff. Ah, she said, really? Moving off now to examine the screen, putting out a thin hand with long, clean, unpainted fingernails to touch for a moment the wooden foliage, the worn gilding of the tracery. He drifted after her to the font, saying things. Once she turned to him, and bared her teeth once more. A conversational response, it seemed to be. He could see very thin, pointed breasts nudging at her jersey when she squatted down to examine the carving. Anyway, on it goes. And I I think with that little end bit, you can tell that um, he's tremendously torn about her, feels inferior, 
he's wanting to be a good vicar, but all this good, evil, good, evil, thread, fate. Um, the next little section is George Radwell had entered the church because of a typing mistake. So it's it's all the tiny little accretions that, that lead to the doom. Uh, and I think it's it's just wonderful. It's wonderfully written. I commend it to everybody. William Boyd described that in the Times Literary Supplement as Penelope Lively exhibits an almost Hardy-esque concern with fate and its mysterious workings, a stimulating novel. So there we are, Tim. Very good. I haven't even read, uh, I think, the one set in Cairo. What's it called? Moon Tiger. Moon Tiger. Didn't she win uh, the book for that? Well, she, she did win yeah. the book for that. Um, yeah. I think a few years after after that one, probably yeah, yeah, late yeah. 80s, I think it was. Yeah, I think that was... Um, but she stopped writing now, hasn't she? I think she's formally retired... She's just written a collection of stories, and I think that's, that's her last book. I think that's what she said, yeah. yeah. But then it's hard for these writers to hang up their pens. Yeah. Keep going till Never stop. Till Never the end. Stop. Yeah. Well, Tim, our guest in August is going to be Professor Pamela Howard OBE. Right. So she's a practising director, scenographer, curator, educator, writer and national treasure. So um, Tim and I were going to catch up with her in the garden of her railway carriage home in Selsey for the launch of a graphic memoir, The Art of Making Theatre. Actually, it's, I've got it now. I'm gesturing at it to Tim. Um, it's actually a proper memoir co-written with um, Pavel, who's her Hungarian director when she's over in Canada. Keep up writing. She does the scenes and directs opera. I wouldn't, call it, I wouldn't call it a graphic novel. It's got the no, occasion, occasional picture in there. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was misinformed by none other than Professor Pamela Howard. Um, that It's an illustrated memoir, really. Mm. But she's wonderful. Anyway, Fantastic. Good. And hopefully we might get um, Catherine McInnes along as well at some stage. We might get, try and get interview her as well. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Susie. Um just to remind you all that we always want to hear anything you've got to say about books uh, email us phone us talk to us um, and uh, and you can get this and any other previous edition of, of the podcast through all the usual places and thank you Camilla as wonderful interview as ever and if you want a copy of her book you know where to come and buy it it's actually going to be available on audio as well from the oh. 1st of August oh narrated by Sam Newton so we're very pleased about that excellent good you have been listening to Talking Books presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly and produced by John Wellsman Ever Petersfield Walking Festival is approaching on foot. This is Susie Wilde. The Petersfield Walking Festival includes more than 40 guided walks around our area, and on the 27th of August, you can join me in my Labrador Rain for an easy walk from Sheet to Durley Marsh and then beside the river into Petersfield. Find information about all the walks including Shine Radio's Wild Walk in aid of the Rosemary Foundation Hospice at Home at petersfieldwalkingfestival.co.uk Support Petersfield's Shine Radio and the Rosemary Foundation in the Petersfield Walking Festival. Dogs are welcome 
and I hope to see you on Saturday the 27th of August.